0: Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with
1: Luke Savage, welcome back everyone. Almost happy New Year.
0: End of a very long year. Uh, it's been a hard year, I think it's fair to say. Happy to see it end. There's the mother of all cliches. Did you enjoy the year? Let, let me let me let me put it this
1: way. I very much enjoyed January first till uh I don't know, about March second or third. What when was Super Tuesday? I enjoyed that part <laughs> of the year. Um, and I enjoyed things less kind of in the uh, subsequent weeks. And then I think the lockdown in Toronto started on something like the 17th of March. And I've enjoyed the year a lot less since then.
0: You know, one of the few things that I did in public this year, because it happened in January, is uh, I went to see Bad Boys 2 at the... Uh, uh, God, what mall is it? Um <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of that? Yorkdale Mall. That's right.
1: I love you. You haven't you haven't been outside your apartment for so long. You've forgotten the names of physical locations you used to visit.
0: Yorkdale Mall might be out of business for all I know now. And yeah, I remember seeing that in public and having a warm feeling watching it. You know, I have no affection for the Bad Boys franchise, but I remember thinking, you know, it's it's nice to see two guys. You know, it's nice to be back in in this world that reminds me of happier days. And I remember thinking that because it was cold out mostly. So it was nice to see like some guys hanging out in Miami who have known each other for a long time. And now that things have gotten even worse, I mean, if they make a Bad Boys 4, I will be there in a heartbeat. And uh, I keep keep thinking, I swear this is going somewhere. Actually, it's not going anywhere. I keep thinking just how happy I would be, how overwhelmed with joy I would be if like I turned on Netflix and Rush Hour 4 just showed up one day you know, it just dropped. I think everyone would be really happy to see that, because it would make us all it would make us all think of happier times in our life. And I think ultimately, you know, I've said in previous episodes that I wanted art that grappled meaningfully with the crisis that we're in. I think I'm coming around to the idea that maybe I don't want that. Maybe what I want is Rush Hour 4.
1: You want it you want to be able to go to a theater and watch Tenet even though Tenet's not I don't think you liked it right you saw it
0: yeah I did see it and I didn't like it but actually quite the opposite what I'd like to do is I'm resigned to never leaving my house again I would like to sit on my couch and then have rush hour four appear on the tv which is something that wouldn't be too appetizing at a theater but in my in my house in the middle of lockdown it would take me back to like the summer of 2001 when I was happy the summer of 2001 at the very end of history, when when Rush Hour 2 came out, you know, just weeks before nine eleven, I would like entertainment that took me that, back to that space.
1: Well, since it's nearly the end of the year, I was thinking we'd try to kind of raise expectations for next year, both in terms of just things getting better for everyone generally, but also relatedly and, you know, what it will be possible to do i have a feeling given some of the announcements that have already been made about movies that are you know coming to streaming services in the new year that you may you may uh well get your wish so congrats everybody 2021 if you're worried about it fear not because rush hour four is probably going to come to a streaming service near you it's not all bad fuck
0: yes audiences can't get enough of rush hour two the movie was crazy funny it was amazing fun filled action packed hilarious there's the bomb there's the bomb Hilarious. (laughs) There's a lot happening in the wild world of politics, and I would like to turn the podcast over to my colleague, Mr. Luke Savage, at this moment, who can fill us in on what's happening. Exciting things, I'm sure, right?
1: Well, I'd like to thank my co-host for that incredible uh, and and very detailed uh, segue into what I wanted to say next.
0: You understand that my brain is like leaking out of my ears at this point, just trying to make it over the finish line of this year.
1: Yeah, I, I know how you feel. And actually, you know, for me, I've been back to work. This week, so I, I kind of had a bit of a holiday, which you know was nice. But uh, then I got got right back uh, this week into the debate over the checks in the U.S. Congress, currently in the U.S. Senate, at least at time of recording, with uh, Bernie Sanders trying to face down Mitch McConnell.
0: And kind of using Mitch McConnell tactics against him almost, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, using the kind of tactics that if Democrats actually wanted to do anything, you know, they'd be doing this kind of thing all the time. I mean, this is precisely the kind of tactic that Joe Biden basically rules out by default. And it's also the kind of tactic he'll need to use if he wants to get anything done, which, of course, um, he doesn't, at least anything beyond the sort of uh, technocratic and, and managerial but yeah, I mean this debate over whether or not to give people $2,000 of cash relief. I mean, this isn't even like they would get it every month. This is an additional $2,000, well, $2,000 in addition to the $1,200 checks that went out last spring. Um so, what's being debated is already an absolute pittance and it's uh, it's you know, it's definitely not going to be enough, but it's certainly better than nothing. And you know, even though I, you know, have spent a lot of time writing about this kind of stuff and uh, and reporting on it, I am always just aghast. I mean, I, I will never cease to be surprised by how just utterly cynical some commentators uh, and some political elites can be in a moment like this. I mean, as soon as it looked like these checks had a chance of actually becoming reality. You know, you had a chorus of voices from kind of the liberal side coming out uh, against them. So, you know, Paul Krugman did a really strange thread uh, about how the checks were a bad idea. You know, there's kind of these wonk arguments against them. Like, you know, despite the fact they would actually be income tested, like you won't get them if you make $75,000 a year or more. Despite that kind of thing, the commentary can never overcome. It will never overcome its aversion to anything that isn't means tested. So we've we've got uh versions of the argument deployed against free college, deployed against Medicare for all, deployed against virtually every kind of means tested program. And what was incredible about Krugman's intervention is that part of it was acknowledging that the $2,000 checks were not actually uh enough. <laughs> like they're not actually so so better to do nothing, right? And, uh, yeah, Larry Summers has also uh, joined the chorus with his intervention just absolutely incredible. Uh, He went on Bloomberg News on Christmas Eve, and, I mean, the thrust of his argument was that there's too much stimulus already. <laughs> and the problem, as he put it, is, is the fact, uh, not that people don't want to spend, but that they can't spend because they can't take a flight or go to a restaurant. So he says, we don't want to overheat the economy by promoting consumer spending, <laughs> which is just incredible. I mean, when, when you set it against you know numbers that show that there's at least 26 million American adults who are, now have so little money that they're quite literally starving. There's a probably an eviction wave coming Uh, Probably a wave of utility shutoffs. Unemployment checks have been clawed back. I mean, there's not a lot of relief uh, out there unless you have savings or are rich. So it's a pretty incredible, uh, it's pretty incredible argument. And I think the whole situation really underscores something that's become, I mean, it's been, it's been true for quite a while, but it's become increasingly apparent in recent years. And that is the extent to which it's it's absurd to pretend that these institutions, you know, institu- the institutions that, you know, the constellation of institutions that make up what we generally call American politics, you know, pretending these institutions really reflect democratic principles at all, uh, that their primary purpose is to serve individual people. Uh, rather than special interests, and furthermore, that they reflect in any meaningful way the popular will, broadly defined, or popular interests in general. I cannot think of anything that underscores the divide between most of the people who wield power in these institutions and the majority of people outside them than, you know, a chorus of people who... You know, definitely, all make a lot more than seventy-five thousand dollars a year. saying in unison, uh, oh no, this is bad. You know, we can't, we can't send two thousand dollar checks to people because we, uh, you know, we have to get uh, help to people who needed the most. You know, we we shouldn't be giving $2,000 as a universal payment because then some people might get it uh, who don't need it. That's the thrust of an editorial, an unsigned editorial in The Washington Post. The Washington Post, of course, uh, which is owned by Jeff Bezos, also opposes wealth taxes on the grounds that uh, you can't take money away from rich people and give it to people who need it because that will stifle innovation.
0: I didn't see the Paul Krugman article, but I did see that New York Times uh, editorial board op-ed where the headline was, I think, something like, the $600 check is good enough. And then, you know, the subhead is something like, sure, it, it should be bigger, it should have come sooner, but for, for working families everywhere, um, yeah, you know, it's some necessary relief, so stop complaining, something like that. And I don't know, when you see that and you see Paul Krugman and you see the Washington Post and... All of these all of these uh, allegedly independent media sources who sort of like get in line behind uh, the messaging from Washington, it's hard not to feel incredibly alienated by that. It's hard not to feel like all of these institutions, uh, the government, and the media are involved in this like vast conspiracy together. And so, you know, when you see so much freaking out, especially in legacy media about things like Substack, you know, people saying, you know, who's there to regulate Substack? Who's there to make sure that extremist thought doesn't get propagated on Substack? You know, it's it's hard to take those arguments seriously or it's hard to take them sympathetically. Yeah,
1: I mean, a, a point that I've tried to make throughout this whole debate is that a lot of the opposition to giving out these checks, I think, you know, I mean, Larry Summers tried to make these kind of wonky technocratic arguments These have come in various forms. You know, uh, every version of this argument uh, has some kind of bad faith thing about how the help isn't going to get to the people who need it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Larry Summers, uh, his op-ed in Bloomberg that he did to follow up his interview was really funny because he starts asking questions like, you know, well, if we're going to get, you know, what's the cutoff going to be? I mean, do people who favor 2,000, would they favor 5,000 or 10,000? And, you know, if writing universal checks is a good idea, why not do it after household incomes have reverted? to normal a lot of these interventions have some version of this where they're saying you know this isn't actually enough so what about all these other possibilities which you know none of the people who make these arguments actually support Larry Summers, I suppose, may be a bad illustration here because he's asking those questions very cynically and kind of for rhetorical purposes. I think if if you go back and look at Paul Krugman's thread from a few days ago, though, you can see him doing uh, a better version of this where his his premise is that this relief is not going to be enough and it's, you know, therefore not going to be effective. But is Paul Krugman going to come out and, you know, use his immense platform to, you know, back politicians who support comprehensive strengthening of America's social safety net, uh, etc.? It seems to me that he's had two pre- pretty good opportunities to do that, one in 2016 and one in 2020, and he declined to do so both times. But just just to return to uh, something I wanted to say earlier, I mean, I really think the issue here is not not any of these wonky technocratic arguments. The issue is not that the checks are not going to succeed. The the issue is that actually they will succeed. The $1,200 checks that went out, just like the unemployment benefits, none of this support was enough. But the evidence is very clear uh, that this relief did help people. Furthermore, that they noticed it. You know, we know, for example, that the $1,200 checks prevented a pretty catastrophic spike in poverty that would have happened otherwise, even though, you know, they were inadequate. And, you know, I think the risk here is that if Congress gets into the business of giving poor people money, the demands to give poor people more money, the demands to redistribute wealth uh, are ultimately going to grow. The kinds of people who argue for it, you know, they tend to adore means testing, partly because, you know, it's so complicated. Uh, It's, you know, very wonky and... Uh, It's easy to obfuscate uh, what's really going on. Most people don't have the time or the inclination to get really into the wonk policy details of, you know, a means tested tax credit or something like that. Universal programs, though, things like Social Security, you know, people understand those and inevitably large, powerful, popular constituencies emerge to defend them. You know, so just returning to the the central point here, I think a, a big reason for opposition to these checks, you know, the real reason is not that they're not going to work. It's that You know, they'll work all too well and there'll be a demand for more of them.
0: You mentioned something earlier about how, you know, Paul Krugman is not going to advocate for stuff like this. Uh, he's had many opportunities to and he doesn't. Naomi Klein had that line about how every four years he forgets what he's written for the previous four years. Yeah. Why doesn't he take that opportunity?
1: Um, I mean, you're asking in relation to Krugman specifically?
0: Yeah, Krugman specifically, just as an individual. I know why media outlets as institutions don't do it, but why not him?
1: I have done some thinking about this actually because Paul Krugman is a guy who circa, you know, 2008- 2009, you know, I would have looked to. He was at least a somewhat consistent voice against austerity. I mean, I remember him writing uh, sympathetically, um, I guess in 2012 about the Greek situation and writing against austerity there. In the mid 2000s, the big domestic policy thing for Democrats was going to be universal health care, right? And he wrote a whole book um, where that was really the central argument. But I was interested, you know, if people want to read about this in more detail, I I wrote a piece called The Diffidence of a Liberal, where I looked into Paul Krugman's political positions. And and look, you shouldn't rule out. Pure naked cynicism and opportunism here, right? I think a lot of people have speculated that Paul Krugman has been angling for a role in various Democratic administrations. But it's interesting, if you go back to the conscience of a liberal, you know, I'd always remembered that as a forceful argument for single payer healthcare, but it's not actually. He makes a very wonky argument where he says, look, if we're building a healthcare system from scratch, we would probably build something like a single payer model. But he says, we're not building it from scratch. You know, we have to build something uh, against the, you know, political. Political realities in the American context. And so he ends up making two seemingly contradictory arguments. One, uh, we need universal health care because it's the right thing to do. And people arguing against it will make arguments. Uh, on the grounds that better is not possible. But then having made that argument, he then suggests that proponents of single payer health care should mitigate their expectations and, and not make single payer care their main legislative goal. It's a very strange and and you know, yeah, I think diffident argument. You know, I think reading into the book a little more, you know, I think it is emblematic of something that you see in, in a lot of liberals, particularly of that generation, which is just a, a, a fundamental belief that they can't even take, you know, basic what you know what would have been basic small liberal positions before the 1990s, because the country is just too irredeemably conservative. So what happens is they end up mitigating their demands in advance. And when you mitigate your demands in advance, you know, they're less forceful. So, you know, usually that makes them less likely to succeed. But but secondly, it means if you get something, you're probably going to get less than what you asked for. And it's always better to get half of an actual demand than half of a demand you've mitigated preemptively. I mean, for me, the big takeaway in engaging uh, with a guy like Krugman, you know, at least once you've kind of stripped away the the things that are probably more just, you know, cynical or op- opportunistic or bad faith. The big takeaway, uh, and I think, you know, for me, the, the big point of disagreement is that I think raising people's expectations and raising people's beliefs about what is possible and what, what is attainable is itself a political goal. You know, Krugman, it's, it's interesting, he... Uh, objected pretty strongly to Obama in 2008. And there was a cynical side to that because he was just a Hillary Clinton partisan. But it's interesting, he actually did get some things right about Obama. He was very critical of Obama's kind of evangelism. And he pointed out that there wasn't a lot of policy substance behind it. Now, I I don't know how that Translates into support for Hillary Clinton, but it it was an interesting observation. And what's uh, deeply frustrating is that, you know, he carried over something like that critique to his critique of Bernie Sanders. So his problem with Bernie Sanders was sort of that uh, he was promising people, you know, these unrealistic things. You know, he was trying to raise people's expectations in a way that, you know, was going to leave them disappointed. And I think he was unable to see the very obvious and fundamental differences between a figure like Obama, who I think raised people's expectations very cynically. And, and manipulatively. And a figure like Sanders, who I think was raising them on the understanding that uh, raising them is itself a very important political goal, right? I mean, it's not actually impossible for a country like the United States, you know, let alone a country that, you know, is much poorer to provide $2,000 checks to people or to provide a basic social minimum, or even to eradicate poverty altogether. And it's certainly not impossible, just as it's not impossible for the richest society in the world to build a healthcare system along the lines of a model that already exists i mean single payer healthcare exists right i mean it's it sounds absurd to say it out loud but it's existed for decades upon decades, you know, in various parts of the world. So the the idea that it's pie in the sky is ridiculous. It, it may be politically unfeasible, but its political non-feasibility is itself a political obstacle to overcome, if that makes sense. And I think that's something really fundamental that someone like Paul Krigman doesn't understand. I, I think also, you know, one thing that persistently annoys me of pundits with large platforms, I think they often underestimate the extent to which they themselves play a role in shaping perceptions around this stuff if paul krugman had spent the past 10 years forcefully arguing for single-payer health care the cause of single-payer health care would be further along in the united states today than it is right now you know it's important in these debates always to register that the pundits who are saying that x y or z thing is uh is impossible they are partly making that a self-fulfilling prophecy and, and you know often playing a quite active role in uh in making said thing impossible
0: Well, earlier you mentioned austerity, and I would now like to turn us to one of the most austere films by Mike Linus' returning champion, Ingmar Bergman. That is his 1963 masterpiece, Winter Light. Winter Light. Ingmar Bergman, the most celebrated and distinguished filmmaker of our time, presents his first film since winning two Academy Awards. Bergman reaches new heights in dramatic achievement as he explores the life of a country pastor, his relationship with his mistress, and the people around him. Starring Gunnar Bjornstrand as the pastor struggling to find God and love in a winter world. And as his mistress who sheds all pride in a desperate effort to give her love, Ingrid Tulin.
1: You say returning champion. Uh, we did The Magician. Have we done any other Bergman Only The films? Magician. Okay, well, I hope there will be some more uh, in the future. A listener recently made a comment to me that, you know, they like when we do good films, you know, films that uh, Will and I actually enjoy. This one certainly falls into that category, although it's uh, it's hardly a, a happy outing. Winter Light isn't the best-known Bergman film. It's probably, it's fair to call it a kind of second-tier one in terms of its reputation. It falls second in what's often called the Silence of God trilogy, a trilogy that begins with Through a Glass Darkly. Uh, Winter Light is the second film in that trilogy. And then a film called The Silence, one of Bergman's strangest and most enigmatic films, is the third. I think Winter Light is my favorite and while I don't think I had a a particularly clear, I mean, there's no political motivation, uh, you know, particularly to watch this movie. I mean, only if I if I gave you the incredibly Michael and us brained one that I actually had in the back of my head, uh, you, you'd laugh at me. Um, but the main reason I wanted to watch this movie this week is because I think its rhythm and its general atmosphere of desolation and solitude uh, in many ways really jibes with the moment we're living through. In a more literal sense, I think it also jives with, you know, the present moment, just that, you know, I guess it depends on where you're listening, but, you know, here in Toronto, where we're recording this, uh, it's dark, it's cold, everything is locked down, it's impossible to see people, it's a very, very solitary moment, and I felt like this film, which... I guess I watched for the fourth time in preparation uh, for this episode, perfectly matched that general feeling. Yeah, I
0: experienced it much the same way. I've also probably seen it about four times, and it hit me this time like it never has before. And I think it is actually possible to do a sort of political reading of the film. Um, It may be a little tortured, it may be a little oblique, but I think there's something there that maybe we can get at later. I think first we should outlined the plot, which is not terribly complicated. It's one of Bergman's most intimately scaled films. It takes place over the course of a single winter afternoon in a small rural village in Sweden. The lead character is a pastor named Thomas, played by Gunnar Bjornstrand, and he presides over a small church, and he's suffering a crisis of faith. He feels himself to be going through the motions when he delivers his sermons. He's disturbed by the silence of God. There also seems to be a conspicuous dearth of spiritual feeling in this church. It's typically very poorly attended, and the services seem rote and mechanical.
1: Yeah, the parishioners in the uh, in the opening sequence he's reciting the liturgy, uh, many of them look bored and dispassionate. You know, they're very detached from what they're doing. Some of them are silent. Some are singing in a very rote and formulaic way. And as Will said, the congregation is is mostly empty. There's a bored organ player, you know, playing the parishioners out when they leave. There's a general atmosphere of kind of going through the motions and, and just desolation to everything. Even as the priest, Thomas Erickson, uh, you know, recites the Lord's Prayer... So those powerful words, which he's obviously recited thousands of times, have come to mean less and less to him, and they seem to mean very little to the parishioners. One of the
0: people at the church that day is his estranged ex-mistress, Marta, played by Ingrid Thulin. She has sent him a letter where she really rips him to shreds, and Bergman depicts the letter by having it delivered as a monologue A single close-up of Ingrid Thulin's face, you know, a six or seven minute take, as she talks to the camera about how Thomas's alleged faith did nothing to make him treat her with love and kindness. By contrast, her own family had no religion when she was growing up, but was very loving. There's another major character who enters the film, a fisherman named Jonas, played by Max von Sydow. He and his pregnant wife come to Tomas's office. Jonas is preoccupied with nuclear proliferation. He's heard that China is developing a nuclear program, and he's very concerned that this will lead to a global conflict that will eradicate life on Earth. And he comes to Tomas's office hoping to be told that there's some reason to live. And Tomas fails at providing comfort. He ends up soliloquizing about his own crisis of faith. And I think this is one of the key scenes in the movie. I'm going to quote a little bit of what Tomas says. He says, I had great dreams once. I was going to make my mark on the world, the sort of ideas you have when you're young. I knew nothing of evil or cruelty. When I was ordained, I was as innocent as a baby. Then everything happened at once. He talks about being a pastor during the Spanish Civil War, where he refused to accept the reality. He said, My God and I resided in an organized world where everything made sense. I put my faith in an improbably and private image of a fatherly God, one who loved mankind, of course, but me most of all. He also says, Picture my prayers to an echo God who gave benign answers and reassuring blessings. Every time I confronted God with the realities I witnessed, he turned into something ugly and revolting. He concludes by saying, If there is no God, would it really make a difference? Life would become understandable. What a relief. Cruelty, loneliness, and fear, all of these would be straightforward and understandable. Suffering is incomprehensible, so it needs no explanation. One of the reasons why I think Bergman was really kind of the brand name mid-century art house auteur was that he uniquely tapped into the spiritual and intellectual crises after the second world war after the holocaust after the bombing of hiroshima and nagasaki i think the silence of god is maybe not as fashionable a topic as it was at the time and yet i did find myself more moved by this film than i have in previous viewings i I found myself Emotionally connecting to it more.
1: I was curious to ask you about that, actually, because, you know, one of the important counterpoints between Tomá and Martha in the film is that she, you know, she we learn is raised in a non-Christian family. She doesn't believe in God. She says, God has never spoken to me because God doesn't exist. And she doesn't seem existentially unhappy uh, in the way that he is. Her unhappiness, the source of her unhappiness is that her love for Tomá isn't reciprocated. I wasn't raised, uh, you know, I wasn't raised Christian, You know, I was raised in a secular family, but you were actually raised Catholic, and I did wonder if that uh, might uh, have colored, you know, the way you experienced the film at all.
0: I was raised Catholic, and you know, I went to church on Sundays growing up, but I have to admit that God always felt very remote to me, felt very abstract. I probably would have told you as a child that I believed in God, but did I think of God? Did I feel God as kind of a daily presence in my life? I, I wouldn't say that, No. A couple of things that resonated with me on this viewing, though, are the opening scenes at church, uh, where the church service seems very, very rote and very mechanical. I definitely identified with that. That's always how I have experienced church. as kind of like this joyless ritual that you do because you have to. And I would also say that, like... I have a certain amount of affection for that, strangely enough. One of the things that I like about Catholicism is—and I know there are Lutherans in this film—but something that I like about Catholicism is it is this kind of ritualized thing. The, the church service is something that sort of is supposed to transcend space and time, is supposed to transcend the whims of fashion. And you're supposed to, if you're a Catholic, you're supposed to just— do it even if you don't feel it even if you even if you don't have the faith you're supposed to still do it and hope that one day you may get the faith and i'm sort of moved by the idea of doing something like that you know committing yourself to the faith even when you don't feel it on any level and just having like faith be having faith be this joyless ritual that you do and, and not something that you even get anything out of in the short term or perhaps not even in the long term. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of joking, but I'm also like sort of serious. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, it's
1: funny, you know, uh, the only context in which I was really in church as a kid was when I was in choir. Right? When I was five or six, kind of around about that age, I was actually in a kind of uh, touring children's choir. You know, I performed all this music And, you know, it's funny, you know, I wasn't in church. I mean, these were religious services, but I or often they were, but I didn't regard myself as as sort of being there for religious reasons. So in a funny way, my own experience sort of mirrors yours uh, in that I was often performing these things, you know, I was five or six years old and this was a lot of work uh, and I often got very bored and very tired so much so that I didn't really appreciate any of this, you know, mostly very beautiful music that I was performing. Um, and so that, that kind of feeling of, uh, of boredom and going through the motions in a church <laughs> is one that I can also relate to, uh, ironically enough, despite my secular upbringing.
0: In an introduction to the film that's on the Criterion Blu-ray, Bergman talks about making the film almost as kind of a radical gesture, as an experiment. Like many artists, he becomes accustomed to the applause of the crowd, and he starts playing to the crowd somewhat. And every now and then he would make a film that, to use his words, I'm not going to worry about being ingratiating. I will write strictly about the problems that preoccupy me.
1: Yeah, an impulse that I think uh, led to the creation of some of his best films. I mean, Uh, That seven or eight minutes at the start of Persona has been, you know, endlessly analyzed, and it is quite literally the product of Bergman, I believe, being in hospital, suffering writer's block, and just kind of writing in a sort of stream of consciousness way everything that came into his head, which was a mix of things like cartoons that he'd watched in childhood, but also, you know, images of the cross and the crucifixion and things like that.
0: But part of that impulse manifests itself in the film's visual style. It's a less fancy-looking movie than some of his other films with the cinematographer Sven Nykvist. The preceding film, Through a Glass Darkly, was more visually spectacular. I I think this film is visually spectacular in its own way. It has a very coherent visual style, a very stark visual style, that it's sort of so ugly that it's beautiful set in this completely un rural village where you've got some trees and a lot of gray skies. You know, it feels like we're stranded here. And when we're talking about why this movie resonates with us or why the movie resonates with me right now, I think there's something about the ugly beauty of it I mean, I don't want to be really heavy handed on this episode and like, you know, say things like uh, the f- the film is ugly, just like the times are ugly, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> you know, that's a that's a very clunky and heavy handed thing to do. And yet this is one of those movies. And I feel this way about certain filmmakers. Uh, the Taiwanese filmmaker Ming Lang is like this, where you kind of have to lean forward for the beauty You kind of have to like work for the beauty a little bit. It becomes a little more interactive rather than having the beauty given to you on a silver platter. You know what I mean? And, you know, what can I say? I feel that way about life right now. (laughs) I knew I knew there would be no way to say that without having it sound clunky. But but there it is. And now this is maybe a bit of a stretch, but like you, I definitely felt a connection between this movie and the current moment, the current lockdown pandemic moment, of course, because of the kind of like isolation the movie depicts and the bleak landscape the movie depicts, but also in the crisis of faith that it depicts. Not so much, I would say, for religion, but uh, for our institutions, if that makes sense. Now, this, this sounds like a Michael and us galaxy brain thing, but I mean... I remember when Trump got elected, and and being a younger and more naive man in those days, thinking, <laughs> "Well, well, how can this be? <laughs> how, how can this be allowed?" And then over the last four years, seeing institutions that you're kind of indoctrinated, let's say, to respect, like like journalism, fail at the test. Yeah, institu-
1: institutions that you're raised to at least think of as you know, if if not perfect, as kind of pillars of a functioning society and kind of fundamentally right thinking mm-hmm. and well-intentioned and, and and trustworthy i think it's worth saying you know before we get too literal here why what will saying uh, actually does make a certain degree of sense you know it's funny I was going to say this is one of my favorite Bergman films. It doesn't, it's not really a very coherent sentence because almost every Bergman film is my favorite Bergman film. But I think a lot of people struggle to understand, you know, I, and I, I, I'm i sympathetic to this. I mean, on the surface, there's no reason why he should be, feel fashionable or feel relevant. I mean, these films, you know, I've, I've read anyway, obviously I don't speak Swedish, but I mean, I've read to a lot of Swedes. Uh, the films feel very mannered i mean they are very much like plays you know characters will d- deliver these long soliloquies that aren't particularly realistic the films sometimes have a kind of i, I don't want to call it a didacticism but i mean they're trying to make points yeah. you know <laughs> and you know often they are very heavy they are set in places that do not feel very places and times that do not feel particularly relevant to us or or don't pr- don't feel particularly immediate But coming back to Winterlight, I think it's a very good illustration of why, you know, at least for me, Bergman always feels kind of relevant and contemporary. And I think I said something similar when we watched The Magician, which would be a good episode to go back and listen to if you like this one. And the reason I say this is because, I mean, I think Winterlight, you know, it's part of what's called the Silence of God trilogy and the, uh, as it were, metaphysical crisis of a disenchanted world in which it's harder for many people to sustain the idea of there being a fundamental harmony in the universe, of there being a loving God, etc. That's all obviously present in the movie. It's obviously very important. But I don't think that's the entirety of what the movie is about. And I think in some ways it is actually a secondary theme in Winter Light. And here it might serve us to just say a little bit more about the plot. So Jonas Pearson, the parishioner who's come uh, worried about the atom bomb, he ends up killing himself, apparently not helped very much by the priest's words. Thomas is confronted by Martha, whose romantic entreaties he's resisted for years. This comes to a head uh, as he admits that, you know, all the excuses he gave her, you know, that he didn't want there to be gossip in the town about the priest, etc. You know, he admits to her, this is all uh, this is all nonsense. Uh, And then he's incredibly cruel. And he says, I'm tired of your loving care, your fussing, your good advice. Uh, your clumsy hands, your anxiousness.
0: In fact, he goes on to say your poor digestion, your rashes, your periods, your frostbitten cheeks. And he ends this soliloquy by saying, once and for all, I have to escape this junkyard of idiotic trivialities.
1: Yeah, he says, I'm sick and tired of it all, of everything to do with you. And I guess uh, the important context for this character that we should have mentioned earlier is that his wife has died four
0: years earlier. I found that speech really shatteringly powerful on this viewing, and I'm trying to put my finger on, on why I found it so powerful. You know, we were talking about how the, the speech is partly motivated by the fact that he's still in love with, still hung up on his, his dead wife. I imagine many of the complaints, petty or otherwise, that he has about Martha, you know, from her digestion to her periods to her rashes, would have applied just as much to his dead wife. And I don't know if this if this plays into the politics of the film at all, but I think what I found so moving and and so so painful about that speech is it shows that it is sort of a choice to love someone. You have to make the decision and you have to commit to it. And if you love someone, you come to know them. You have to commit to knowing them in such an intense way, in such a multifaceted way. And he's unwilling to make that commitment with her, I don't know. I I think I think maybe the last time I saw this movie, I I perhaps wasn't wasn't old enough to appreciate a scene like this. If you know what I mean.
1: Well, and importantly, this monologue also you know mirrors his crisis of faith in general, right? Because just as he's no longer able to see beauty in any of the kind of more pedestrian aspects of a relationship, just the physical intimacy, the being around someone, the sharing space with them, you know, he's not able to see beauty in daily life at all. You know, when he looks at the world, all he sees his bleakness and i think it's important to register even though that he's you know even though he's incredibly cruel to martha in this scene that this hatred that he's manifesting is really a kind of self-hatred. It's a hatred of the world. Um, his crisis of faith, you know, as explained in the early speech he gives that uh, Will was quoting from uh, a few minutes ago. You know, he's able to explain how you know he could sustain his own private God, his benign God, while his wife was there to plug the holes. You know, he witnessed these horrors, you know, during the Spanish Civil War, um, and they didn't shake him, you know, because he wasn't alone. This is why Martha's character compliments him in a perfectly inverse way, because she actually doesn't have any of these existential fears, but she is deeply unhappy, and it's because her love isn't reciprocated. There's another monologue in the film that, to me, speaks to what it's really about. Uh, this one is given by Algot Frövik, uh, played by Alan Edwall, who's a, a, another actor. All the actors in this film, all the main actors, appear very regularly in Bergman. He plays the sexton or the, the assistant at the church, and we learn early in the film that he's disabled, and in a way that's obviously caused him tremendous physical pain throughout his life. And he wonders idly to the priest. Uh, You know, he says, you know, the emphasis in Christianity on Christ's physical pain. He says, quote, it couldn't have been all that bad. It may sound presumptuous of me, but in my humble way, I've suffered as much physical pain as Jesus. And his torments were rather brief, lasting some four hours, I gather. I feel that he was tormented far worse on another level. And then he goes on to say, you know, that by the time of the crucifixion, Christ's disciples, you know, they weren't there for him. He goes on to say, quote, They abandoned him to the last man, and he was left alone. That must have been painful, realizing that no one understands. To be abandoned when you need someone to rely on, that must be excruciatingly painful. But the worst was yet to come. When Jesus was nailed to the cross and hung there in torment, he cried out, God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cried out as loud as he could. He thought that his heavenly father had abandoned him. He believed everything he'd ever preached was a lie. The moments before he died, Christ was seized by doubt. Surely that must have been his greatest hardship, God's silence. And I think this monologue, you know, which the priest receives quite bleakly before the film's unforgettable final scene, where he performs the liturgy to what is now a completely empty congregation, and he delivers the final line in the film, the whole earth is full of his glory. I think the monologue and this final scene captures, if you want, the dual meanings of this film and why I think it transcends some of the metaphysical questions that seem to be at its center. It's true that Thomas, the priest, has suffered a crisis of faith, But I think it's also very important what the source of that crisis is. You know, the source is his personal loneliness. He admits that he was able to sustain uh, his belief in the universe having some fundamental harmony, some fundamental goodness, even as he witnessed horrible things. Back when he had a companion to share in the difficulties of the world with, having lost that companionship, he no longer has any faith, not just in God, in himself as a community leader and and as a spiritual guide for others but also in himself as somebody who can make any meaningful impact on the world or who should even try. And I think this is uh, what makes the film so powerful and what, for me anyway, makes it very resonant, you know, is it's not just about post-war disenchantment. Many of his films concern these same themes, but I don't think they're ultimately only about that. I think they're about a wider crisis that people have experienced in varying degrees for thousands of years, whether or not they are themselves personally religious Or exist in a society that is committed to the principles of Christianity or or monotheism in general. One of the things that's always struck me about Bergman's films, you know, is they have this reputation for being very depressing. And again, I'm certainly sympathetic to that because they are often very barren and austere and sort of metaphysically bleak. Many of them dwell on, you know, the difficulties of processing a world in which there doesn't seem to be any fundamental goodness or order or harmony. But I think Bergman, you know, most of the time, if not all of the time, offers at least a provisionally optimistic rejoinder to this difficulty, you know, this difficulty that really defines the human condition. And that's that opting in or out of the world is kind of a choice. It's true that there are pretty profound and deeply unsettling implications of the idea that, you know, we're just all atoms in the void. There's no creator. There's no kind of structuring presence and no order to anything. But just as that has profound implications, denying that that's all there is also has pretty profound implications. And I don't think that that denial necessarily has to come in a religious form. People believe in God for all sorts of reasons, some because they feel faith very deeply, others because they simply don't want to confront the possibility that there is no God. But whether you turn away from nihilism on secular or faith based grounds, I think the act of doing so can be an incredibly powerful one. I mean, I've never been a religious person, but, you know, in my better and in my more hopeful moments, I find I'm able to find a sense of purpose by recognizing, you know, the injustice and and evil and unfairness of the world, but also uh, in militating against them. I think the decision to do that, the decision to not accept that nothing better is possible, I think that can be an incredibly powerful and profound one on whatever grounds you ultimately make that decision. And to demonstrate that this isn't something that, you know, I'm merely projecting onto Bergman, I did want to read a little bit from his autobiography, The Magic Lantern, where he talks about the filming and the conception of winter light. And I think it really speaks to how the film is advancing a thesis, both about faith and belief, but also about individuals and what faith and belief means at the level of the individual as well as the level of the metaphysical. Examining Bergman's process is always interesting, and unlike a lot of artists, I've always found him to be incredibly transparent about it. He's able to produce such incredibly profound scenes that have such deep meaning, and yet Uh, Sometimes you find out that their inspiration or their source was the most pedestrian thing imaginable. In the filming of Winter Light, he says, "...I went around looking at churches in Upland in the early spring. In most cases, I borrowed the key from the organist and sat for a few hours in the church, watching the light travel across the space inside and thinking of how I would end my film. Everything had been written down and planned except the ending." One Sunday, I phoned Father early in the morning and asked him if he would like to come with me on an outing. Mother was in hospital after her first heart attack and Father had isolated himself. His hands and feet had grown worse and now he wore orthopedic boots and walked with a stick. Out of self-discipline and sheer willpower, he continued his duties in the parish of the Royal Palace. He was 75. It was an early spring day with mist and bright light reflecting off the surrounding snow. We arrived in plenty of time at the little church north of Uppsala to find four churchgoers ahead of us waiting in the narrow pews. The churchwarden and the sexton were whispering on the porch while a female organist was rummaging in the organ loft. Even after the summoning bell had faded over the plain, the pastor still had not appeared. A long silence ensued in heaven and on earth. Father shifted uneasily in his seat and muttered to himself and me, A few minutes later, we heard the sound of a car speeding across the slippery ground outside. A door slammed, and after a minute, the pastor came puffing down the aisle. When he got to the altar trail, he turned around and looked at his congregation with red-rimmed eyes. He was a thin, long-haired man, his trimmed beard scarcely covering his receding chin. He swung his arms like a skier and coughed, the hair on the crown of his head curly and his forehead turning red. "'I am sick,' said the pastor. "'I have a high fever and a chill.' "'He sought sympathy in our eyes. "'I have permission to give you a short service. "'There will be no communion. "'I'll preach as best I can, "'then we'll sing a hymn, and that will have to do. "'I'll just go into the sacristy and put on my cassock.' "'He bowed and for a few moments stood irresolutely, "'as if waiting for applause "'or at least some sign of approval. "'But when no one reacted, "'he disappeared through a heavy door. "'Father rose from his seat in the pew. "'He was upset. "'I must speak to that man. "'Let me pass.' He got out of the pew and limped into the sacristy—I hope I'm pronouncing that right—leaning heavily on his stick. A short and agitated conversation followed. And the conclusion here, I think, really validates my reading of the film. He writes, A few minutes later, the church warden appeared. He smiled with embarrassment and explained that there would be a communion service after all, and an older colleague would assist the pastor. The introductory hymn was sung by the organist and us few churchgoers. At the end of the second verse, Father came in in white vestments with his stick. When the hymn was over, he turned to us and spoke in his calm, free voice, Holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Glory be to thee, O Lord most high. Thus it was that I discovered the ending to winter light and a rule I was to follow from then on. Irrespective of anything that happens to you in life, you hold your own communion.